Amen. Can we give it up for the worship team as we take a seat here tonight? Thank you, guys. Thank you for being here. If you're online, thank you for tuning in. And if you are present and you have kids that are age three through fifth grade potty trained, y'all can head outside, have some fun in this beautiful weather. Some of y'all that are tuning in online are just like, huh. I can take my laptop outside. It is beautiful outside. Somebody earlier was in the chat talking about fire pit weather. So, hey, I'll preach to you by a fire pit. I don't care. So, uh, but it is good. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for being here. And uh, we are also in the month of honoring pastors. It is Pastors Appreciation Month. Uh, the elders came up here last week, honored the entire staff. So thank you for that. But I want to circle back. I want to double down. Because not only uh, uh, does Paul tell Timothy that those that serve and preach and teach are worthy of a double honor, but uh, this month is not just Pastor's Appreciation Month. It is the 13-year anniversary of Fred joining City Life. Pastor Fred, 13 years of leadership, vision, sacrifice that we're not going to know this side of heaven. So thank you. 13 years. We have a card for him. I want to say it's on the pew, right? behind you snuck it in there but uh you can tell him thank you again tonight and and can I just pray for him as well can we pray whether you're here whether you're online if you're here can we extend hands just thinking of this moment 13 years when I started thinking about scripture the first 13 that came to mind was the Israelites circling Jericho 13 times once for six days and then seven on the seventh day and they had to have thought man this is so unnecessarily drawn out (laughs) who made this plan right and I was just praying for the Michos, really Fred, Vanessa, the entire family that moved here. And just feeling like there are dreams, there are visions that you've been holding to and clinging to for, for seemingly those 13 years just waiting for them to come to fruition. Not just for the church, but for your family. And I pray that this year, the 13th year, will be the year where you start to see those dreams take root. Where you begin to see the fruit of those visions that God has given you. You've been so faithful. We pray that God will bless that faithfulness with a reaping this year. Your 13th year at City Life. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, we can give it up again for Pastor Fred. <laughs> Vanessa and I were talking earlier. Our anniversary in January is 15 years. <sighs> we old. Sorry. <laughs> I, could, I could start reminiscing, but it's a big month. It's a big month for our nation. It's a big year for our nation. It was Fred's idea some months back that we would be in this series called The Moral Dilemma in this season. And we opened this series a couple of weeks ago talking about the pole of polarization. How the impulse of our flesh is to fracture into tribes, find our corners, and then dig in. It's, it's our impulse of the flesh. And, and, and here's the reality in our church tonight. Right? We're divided politically. We're going to vote every which way come November. And the enemy would love for us to think that that's a problem. That's an issue. Right? If we had perfect unity, we would be unified in our political uh, convictions and even the way we vote. And yet we've talked about how the pinnacle of unity is harmony in the midst of diversity. Loving each other well, even in the midst of political diversity. Republican, Democrat, independent, indecisive, right? There's room for all of us here as we love one another and follow Christ together. And as we talked about, this diversity within the body of Christ, it shouldn't shock us. Because no party and no candidate falls perfectly within the biblical framework we're given. Now, you could have come up to me 
on Tuesday and said, hey, Pastor Justin, could you do something on how the teachings of Jesus line up with the Republican platform? And I could have put on some red-colored glasses and opened up Scripture and, and cooked something up. You could have come to me and said, hey, Pastor Justin, could you do something on how the, the Democratic platform lines up with the teachings of Jesus? And I could have put on some blue-colored glasses, dug through Scripture, and put something together. And yet both sides, again, they fall so regrettably short of the Bible's framework, hence the title of this series, The Moral Dilemma, which speaks to making a choice between two options, neither of which align perfectly with morality. It would be a whole lot easier if the politics in red and blue were simple, black and white. It would be way more convenient for all of us, but it isn't. So the question becomes, as we navigate the gray together, how do we follow Christ faithfully, love each other graciously, and walk in unity in a season that is so divided. This isn't just some cute series for the political season and the the upcoming election. No, this sermon series is mission critical. You look at when Jesus prayed for the church in John 17, he prayed for our unity, praying for our unity, praying for every believer and member of the church to come, that they would be one as he and God the Father were one. And in this prayer, the implication is only then, it says, then the world will know you sent me and have loved them. Jesus' prayer for our unity isn't even about so much what he's doing in us, but what he wants to do through us. We can be a divided church and keep existing, take up space, but if we're going to walk the mission he's given us, it's going to take unity in the midst of diversity that's, con- that's going to convince the world of God's love. So again, the question we're wrestling with is, how do we best walk in and demonstrate unity in this divisive season? And tonight I want to go to the Old Testament and look at how God uses Isaiah as a prophetic voice at a pivotal point, actually multiple pivotal points in the nation of Judah. And I'm going to be in Isaiah 30. I'm going to bounce around in Isaiah 30 a little bit. I'm going to read verses 1 through 2 and then 8 through 17. It starts with a woe, so you know we're about to go in. It says, woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord. To those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for Pharaoh's protection to Egypt's shade for refuge. But Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. He goes on to say, go now, write it on a tablet for them. Inscribe it on a scroll that for the days to come it may be an everlasting witness. These are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, see no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way. Go off this path and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Then in verse 15, he goes on to say, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. I love that. In rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. I'll read that text tonight. We're going to dive into it, but if you're taking notes, the title tonight is simply Partners in Calling. And two weeks ago, we talked about this pole of polarization, and, and when we are in the political arena, when we are in our nation, we're also pulled into partnerships. You see, religion and politics have been intertwined since the beginnings of civilization. And some try to separate the two, right? And our culture often points to the idea of the separation of church and state, right? Which is meant to 
in our culture at this point, it means that to inject religious ideas and values into political discourse and conversation, that's to betray the separation of church and state. But really, the separation of church and state is about the preventing a theocracy, right, where there is one religion or even one denomination, like what they fled from <laughs> to come to America, that is the religion of the nation. This provides freedom of religion, which is a good thing that we should champion. And I say all this to say that religious values, our values, would and should absolutely find a place in politics because all policy is based on values. My hope is that everybody that votes in November, whether their values are religious or secular in nature, that they vote based on their values. So for us to be faithful as Christians in the political arena is to hold to biblical values and biblical convictions. And sometimes those convictions we cling to the tightest, they overlap with the values of a political platform. That's where we get partisanship, the support of a party because of its causes. That's where this is formed. But even between election cycles, even between votes, there can be a partnership, right, where our values or a cause we champion, for instance, Virginia Beach Justice Initiative, right, fights sex trafficking. There might be believers and unbelievers that fight for that, Republicans and Democrats on both sides of the aisle fighting for that, advocating for this cause. That's a partnership. And when Christians get involved politically in partnerships, good things can happen. Like, the most important Arguably the most important movement in our nation's history, the civil rights movement, was the result of partnerships based on biblical values. We do well to remember that the man that became the face of the movement, Martin Luther King Jr., was a minister before he was an activist. And he once said, I didn't get my inspiration from Karl Marx. I got it from a man named Jesus, a Galilean who said he was anointed to heal the brokenhearted. See, Martin Luther King Jr. knew that Jesus was the answer. He knew deep down that we weren't going to get perfect horizontal reconciliation without vertical reconciliation with God first. But fighting for that Civil Rights Act, did he come alongside people that didn't believe like him, revolt like him? Sure. That's partnership. And it was done to the benefit of our nation. And in the Bible, in Israel's history, we see partnerships done right. Like Joseph in the Egyptian government working as Pharaoh's right-hand man to save Thousands, if not millions of people who otherwise would have starved during famine. You see Esther using her role in Persia to save lives. See Daniel working in Babylon and so on. But in the Bible, you also see partnerships and alliances done wrong. That's what we see in Isaiah 30, where Isaiah is warning Judah that, well, actually, excuse me, to preface that, before Isaiah 30, it's in Isaiah 7, that he confronts King Ahaz and says, hey, I know you're desperate. But this alliance you want to you wanna draw up with Assyria is going to be a disaster. Trust in God, right? He's, he's warning him. That is an enemy of, of Judah that you are going to build this alliance with is going to end poorly. And yet, rather than trusting God, Ahaz turns to Assyria. And predictably, and as Isaiah prophetically called, Assyria eventually turns on Judah. And so it's in Isaiah 30 where we get Judah's proposed solution. Oh, so... Assyria, that didn't work out. So let's turn to another nation. For our Assyria problem, we're going to turn to Egypt. And again, we see Isaiah saying, look, you have to choose whether you're going to trust God or you're going to trust another nation. And it's a common theme in Isaiah, and then we see a common theme in Israel's history. They trust in nations instead. Now, you might conclude based on this that, that coming alongside all nations would have been bad, right? All partnerships would have, would have been a wreck 
But we see God use Persia, right, to usher the Israelites out of captivity and back to Jerusalem. So what's the issue here in Isaiah 30? It's what Steph, we didn't talk about this, was talking about at the end of the worship set. Trust. Where was their trust? This was their way of delivering themselves. And it's why Isaiah reminds them in verse 15, trust in God is your strength. Now, for us in pews here in America, we're not partnering with nations. But we do feel the pull of partnerships and partisanship, both good and bad, pulls on where we place our trust. And I made mention of the Civil Rights Movement, which led to the Civil Rights Act being signed by President Johnson. But you don't have to continue far in history to see partnerships that didn't work out so well. You know, Billy Graham was once known as America's pastor. He was the man. <laughs> Like Isaiah was known and had the ear of kings. He knew every president from Harry Truman to Barack Obama. He had interactions with all of them. And between all those interactions, he was bringing people to Jesus left and right. Such a life well lived. But there was one particular president, President Nixon, who used his relationship with Billy Graham in an opportunistic fashion to get him to say things to his massive following that Billy Graham had. And post-Watergate... Billy Graham had to deal with the consequences of this partnership and compromising things he said along the way. Matter of fact, in an interview in 2011, as he was looking back on his life, he said, if he could change anything, I would have steered clear of politics. I'm grateful for the opportunities God gave me to minister to people in high places. People in power have spiritual and personal needs like everyone else. That's why we pray for them. And often they have no one to talk to. But looking back, I know I sometimes crossed the line and I wouldn't do that now. You know, while this quote gives us a healthy caution, as we've talked about in previous weeks, we should still engage politics with a healthy courage. Because as we've talked about, the answer isn't to steer clear of politics. Politics is a useful tool to follow the instructions of God to do justice and love our neighbor and work for the benefit of the place he's placed us. But the question becomes, right, obviously there's lines we can cross. So what does being an advocate for God's truth, a voice for God's truth look like for the church in America and our unique cultural context. Because our cultural doesn't fit into the framework of ancient Israel, right? America isn't God's new chosen people, but we the church are God's people, and we're called to have a voice where he's placed us here. We're called to be a light where he's placed us here. And tonight I think it'd be helpful for us to consider the setup God provided for Israel with kings and prophets. Again, it's, not, it's a different cultural context, but it'll be helpful. And I want to look quickly at four qualities of the prophet, especially Isaiah tonight, before returning to Assyria and Egypt and the problem we see in chapter 30. And the first thing to consider is the prophet's role. The prophet's role. You see, before there were independent courts and elections and checks and balances, religion often provided the only check on power and political powers. See, for the Israelites, there was a power higher than any king, and it was God. It was Yahweh. And prophets spoke to the king on God's behalf and served as a counterbalance and served as accountability. They were partners in calling to guide the nation forward. Each king was supposed to have a prophet by his side speaking the word of God to him. That's why Isaiah 30 verse 8 read, go write this in a book as a witness that these leaders refused the Lord's instructions. God was saying, look, I see what they're doing and I'm going to hold them accountable. And we see this balance from the outset with the first king, right, Saul and Samuel. We see David and Nathan. See, the prophet Ahijah challenges the sons of Solomon and 
Shemaiah confronts Rehoboam, and Elijah comes at Ahab, and Isaiah counsels Hezekiah, and hold of the prophetess guides Josiah. From counseling to confronting, the prophet was supposed to have a voice in the king's ruling. But as kings, as you read First and Second Kings, which really could be called First and Second Kings and prophets, <laughs> because there's so many prophets, as they continue to walk in rebellion and ignore the word of God, they also ignored his prophets, even had them killed. So we see the prophet's voice shift from the courts where they were initially placed into the wilderness. Yet they keep speaking and they keep prophesying. Whether it was a court prophet like Nathan who had the ear of David, or again, it was like Elijah coming out of the wilderness confronting Ahab. The church should also have a voice that speaks up and speaks out when our nation breaks from truth and justice and morality. But again, what does that look like in 2020? Because we don't have a king and we're people in pews. Well, consider, this is a comment from a recent comment section here in 2020. It says, listen to me, you fat cows living in New York, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who are always calling to your husbands, bring us another drink. The sovereign Lord has sworn this by his holiness. The time will come when you will be led away with hooks in your noses. Every last one of you will be dragged away like fish on a hook. Okay, I lied. This, it's not from a comment section. It's actually words from the prophet Amos. And not to New York, but to Sumerians. But I share that because this is often, I feel like, the prophetic posture that so many believers seem to borrow from, especially when we operate behind a keyboard. Right? We simply go off and then log off. We like to claim the, the, the tone of the prophets for ourselves, but I think we do well to remember not just their role, but really their reticence. Right, you look at the call of Isaiah in Isaiah 6, and you look at the call of all the prophets, there's almost a universal hesitancy in the moment to be God's mouthpiece and step out, step out and start holding people accountable. Isaiah 6, again, in, in Isaiah 6, you see Isaiah hesitate. You see Moses at the burning bush, like Steph was talking about, all but say no. Like, is there anybody else till God gets angry? Jeremiah wanted nothing more than to be relieved of his duty. The words of Ezekiel <laughs> upon his calling, the Low-key cracked me up because he says, I went in bitterness and turmoil, but the Lord's hold on me was strong. <laughs> but meanwhile, in our culture in 2020, the trap social media provides for us is we can rush to comment and speak out on everything. From things we know little about to articles we never read <laughs> to with people we barely even met. Why? Because our flesh has this, this impulse to, to vent. That's why Proverbs 29, 20 serves up the warning. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. It's the same reason James advocates slowness of speech, and we did that entire sermon series on our words when COVID started. Right? So when I go to, it's been a while, but when I go to type up a, a broad challenge or a retort or step into some public debate online, I always ask myself, am I in a rush to do this? Or am I borderline hesitant, even slow to speak? Because if it's spoken in haste and a quick emotional flurry, I know chances are it's bordering on my own foolishness that flows from self-righteousness. And I'm going to feed division, not reconciliation. But mind you, that doesn't mean I don't speak. Because, yeah, prophets had a role. You see their reticence and their hesitation, but they did have a response, right? Their, their obedience was a vocal one to speak out on behalf of God. And I think of Proverbs 31.8. It says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. Who can't speak for themselves, right? 
Who is helpless? In our culture, it's certainly those in the womb, those on the margins, the minority, the ones our justice fails and the ones society at large forgets. And we see Isaiah doing this, speaking up for people again and again in his book. In the first chapter alone, he mentions justice three times and goes on to speak about it over 30 times from there. But again, what does Proverbs 31.8 look like in our culture, in a nation like ours? We, we don't have a king. <laughs> and our president has checks and balances. So this isn't apples to apples. We have a constitutional republic, all, all of the above. But you can point to two things in our nation where we have the ability to speak up and speak out when we need to. And that's advocacy and protest. It's two sides of the same coin. Our advocacy is what we do on the front end <laughs> to, to help make sure the government does the right thing when it comes to keeping peace and justice and order. Protest is what happens on the back end when they did something wrong. Protest is a tricky word these days, though. It is. Because when there's protests that doesn't include us, doesn't really concern us, sometimes we'll, we'll immediately point to Hebrews 13, Romans 13, excuse me, where it says, let everyone be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. This is the word of God. Right? It's important that we should rightly apply this, and yet so often the application I see is Romans 13 for thee, but not for me. Because what happens is when your own personal rights are being infringed upon and the injustice is coming at you, you begin to realize the importance and value of protest. You jump quickly from Romans 13 back to Proverbs 31. Again, this is not a, a crystal clear jump from context to context, but you could say that in our representative democracy where our elected officials are public servants, Romans 13, yeah, you could use it as an injunction on protest, but at the same time, it could encourage the people in our nation where the government is created and subject to the people per the Constitution to speak up and speak out when it's needed. And listen, protest, like every other tool, can be used to help or to hurt, right? It can get to the point where it does more harm than good, but it doesn't mean we throw it away. It means we walk in it with responsibility. Look at Rosa Parks. Someone who protested through the simple act of sitting in a seat on a bus and refusing to move back based on the color of her skin. A simple act of protest that really caused waves that moved an entire movement forward. And it was all based on her faith. You know, she once said, from my upbringing in the Bible, I learned that people should stand up for rights. She took a stand by where she sat on a bus. And as I was studying this week, I think it was like psychology as a, as a natural science or something where I learned in college a, a quote from a guy named Rufus Miles, which says, where you stand depends on where you sit. Maybe you're saying, who the heck is Rufus Miles and why do I care? <laughs> Rufus Miles served in the government in the early 20th century, and this statement of his went down to become known in political science as Miles' Law. Where you stand depends on where you sit. And it speaks to this reality. The viewpoints that you are likely to take a stand on flow from the seat or the position you occupy. Your context informs your perspective, and then your perspective is going to shape your politics. You may vote one way because you want to take a stand on this issue that means a lot to you based on your life. And then somebody over here might vote a different way because they want to take a stand on this other issue based on the way they've lived their life. 
See, if context shape our perspectives that shape our politics, that means your political views weren't formed in a vacuum. There were things out of your control and even out of my control that shaped our political views. Where we grew up, how we were raised, who raised us, what you experienced, how you were educated, who you were related to, whether you grew up in wealth or poverty, these all shape your perspectives. Where we sat coming up determines in a large way where we take our stand as mature adults. And what determines whether we relate to others as mature adults is whether we're willing to give people the same grace we give ourselves based on the seat we have and the context we're coming out of. This isn't about some false equivalency. There is black and white and right and wrong. But in the midst of the vast areas of gray politically, this fosters unity in the midst of diversity. It's why generational, racial, socioeconomic diversity within the church is so important. People coming from different proverbial seats and contexts. It may lead to division politically where we don't all vote the same way. But it leads to an understanding and grace for others that can foster unity. And that's so key in our mission. And look, if you say things like, I don't understand how somebody could ever fill in the blank. I don't know why anybody would ever fill in the blank. Ultimately, when you ask these questions, it doesn't say as much about that person as it says about yourself. You just don't understand. And that's not by some egregious error, right? It's based on the seat you've had, which is a limited perspective. If I don't understand, I should find somebody that diverges from the seat I've been sitting in, begin to understand their perspective and context and listen. And... (laughs) This isn't so you can change the way you vote. Most likely you're not going to change the way you vote. But it can change and grow the way we love. (laughs) The way we listen, love, and and walk in unity amidst diversity. But lastly, we should look at the prophet's common recipient. We got the role, the reticence, the response, but also the recipient. We read in Isaiah 30, it says, they tell the prophets, don't tell us what is right. Tell us nice things. Tell us lies. Forget all this gloom. Get off your narrow path. Who is they in this verse? It's the leaders of Israel because that's who Isaiah was confronting. See, the danger of being a prophet in the king's court in that day is that eventually you start catering to those in power. There are prophets that are talked about in Isaiah as blind prophets. They wanted to give a good word and get paid. (laughs) They wanted to tell the king whatever he wanted to hear So they would turn a blind eye to immorality and injustice and end up turning a a deaf ear to God. You know, the common recipient, though, of the Old Testament's prophetic critiques that we have in Scripture was often, not always, but often their own tribe. You know, it's so easy to criticize those people, (laughs) other tribes. But critiquing your own tribe, it's costly. And it's why... Often it costs the prophets their popularity, sometimes their very lives. But again, you ask the question, what is this saying to me in 2020 in our current culture? What's practical application for an ancient text about prophets and kings and the recipients of these words when we're talking parties and presidential elections? I'll tell you this, mind your logs or log out. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 4, before you go and try to take a speck out of another person's eye, take the log out of your own. What he said literally is, have, or excuse me, how can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? 
Why do I bring this up? Because this series is bigger than just a person-to-person interaction. It's about political discourse and just the discourse in our country in this divisive time. But the principle remains. The humility we need to actually have one of those super rare, fruitful (laughs) political discourses or a dialogue or even a debate is only going to come after some healthy self-reflection. Because you see, when it comes to our political leanings, whether it's left or right, red or blue, we all too often minimize or turn a blind eye to the problems in our party's platform to solve those other issues that we hold, on, we hold to as a priority based on our convictions. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you can't recognize the problematic logs in your own camp's platform, you probably aren't ready to enter the dialogue in a constructive way. Because until you've wrestled with the logs within your own camp, and recognize the moral dilemma that it presents you with, and realize the grace that you extend to yourself as a result, you'll likely withhold that same grace from others. And let me tell you, our public discourse desperately needs more grace and not less. Our political discourse would immediately improve the moment we stop treating people who vote or or, or think differently than us as, as mentally or morally inferior and recognize that we all face a moral dilemma. Each camp has logs to be dealt with. And again, until you wrestle with those logs in your own camp and realize the grace you extend to yourself as a result will likely withhold that same grace from others and administer more division. Again, this isn't about some, some false equivalency or moral relativity. There is black and white moral issues that need to be dealt with in our nation. There's right and wrong. We have to be faithful to the truth of Scripture as it applies to all issues. But we have to recognize that to be faithful to Scripture in this way will often mean critiquing both sides. And the middle can be a lonely place. Prophets would tell you that. But if a person or party has transcended critique, they've entered a godlike status. And the Bible has a couple commands about that. But that's another sermon for another time. I want to come back, and there's not much time, but I want to come back to Assyria and Egypt and Isaiah 30. I find it ironic in light of the above that when Assyria comes to put the Israelites and Judah under siege, King Hezekiah is the king at this point, and the Assyrian commander calls Egypt a splintered reed of a staff, which pierces a man and wounds him if he leans on it. He was saying, look, you lean on Egypt as an alliance, and they will break you. They will give you splinters. They may even shoot some pieces up into your eyes. But what they didn't realize is they were in the same boat. They had problematic logs in their own platform, and they too would crumble. God promises through Isaiah to judge the Assyrians the same way he would the Egyptians. You know, one of the statements Isaiah makes that would have been the most mind-blowing perhaps in the entire book for the Jewish people is in Isaiah 19. It says, in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be a third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. That would have been mine. You think of like the three or the two greatest enemies our nation has, and then, like, there's a scripture, like, y'all going to be worshiping together. (laughs) They're my people. Those other enemies are my handiwork. You're my inheritance. It's like Galatians 3.28 where it says there's neither Jew nor Gentile. They're all one in Christ. 
What's implied here is there's not Egyptian, Assyrian, or Israelite. We're all God's people. How much more red or blue, Republican, Democrat, progressive, conservative, all one in Christ? And let me, at this point, it might be triple down on this point. This isn't about convincing you to vote one way or the other. God didn't make the Assyrians Egyptians. God didn't make the Egyptians Assyrians. No, he made them both his people, one in him. He does the same with us. So engage politically. Vote according to your conscience. All I'm saying is may we learn to extend grace to the other tribe, the them to our tribal, us and them and our culture, because in heaven it's going to be a we under the blood of the lamb. And may we remember candidates, their platforms are going to win or lose on November 3rd, but the church wins or loses by our love and the unity we walk in every day in between. And as Jesus outlines in his prayer in John 17, we're only going to make a dent in the darkness and heal division in our land if we walk in unity. Meaning, ultimately, our nation is going to win or lose and what truly matters based on how we love one another between elections. It's our unity that's going to point to Jesus. And he's so worthy of the worship. Because in Jesus, we see the, the, the role of king and prophet come together. He's the good and perfect prophet. He's the good and perfect king. He speaks the word of God the Father with perfection because they're one, and he rules with perfection as king. Our government's going to come and go, but as Isaiah prophesied of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So let me close and echo what Steph has talked about, what I've already talked about. Where, where's your trust? Because, again, it's the theme throughout Isaiah. The Israelites asked for a king originally because of distrust of God as the king of kings. They wanted to be like all the nations around them. And then this love and infatuation for the nations around them, ultimately, they decided again and again later on to choose their, those partnerships over God because of their trust issues. Politics is a good thing. Again, it's a tool that we can use to love our neighbors, do justice, work for the good of the nation we're in. But it's also an arena where if we're not careful, we can cross that line where it begins to displace our trust in God. May we remember Isaiah 30, 15, where he says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Salvation, we can rest in salvation. Why can we rest in salvation? Because your faith and trust is built on the work of Jesus Christ and what he already did at the cross. If you've never put your trust in Jesus, put the full weight of your life on his sacrifice, man, I'd love to talk with you, pray with you tonight. If you're online, there's a button you can click for prayer to, to be resourced and receive prayer. But for others of us, may we simply remember that God is so worthy of our trust. Not just the peace, but again, the full weight of our lives. It's a promise in Isaiah 40, 31. Many of us may have heard this before. But it says, those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. You know, this season may be tiresome for a myriad of reasons for you. And politics might not even be anywhere near the top of the list. Might be the last thing on your mind. But may we remember tonight that God is so worthy of our trust. And when we trust in the Lord, we will find new strength. That in quietness and trust is our strength. God, we thank you that you are the king of kings. And that speaks to the fact that you are almighty. You are omnipotent. 
We thank you that at the same time, <laughs> the same way you were writing down everything that the kings of Israel were doing, right? It, it makes it seem like you're just a, a stern taskmaster up in heaven ready to hold us all accountable. But no, you're writing down everything we're doing every day in love. You care about every detail of our lives. And I pray that we would be able to rest in that. God, that in quietness and in trust, when there's so much chaos around us, so many reasons to fear and be anxious, Lord God, that we would be able to return again and again to the work of Jesus Christ at the cross. That doesn't just give us grace and mercy. It gives us peace. It gives us reconciliation vertically with you. So I pray that we as a church would continue to work for reconciliation horizontally with those around us, walking in unity, extending the gospel, and doing it effectively because we love each other even in the midst of our diversity. God, I pray that you would continue to do a work in us, not just for us, but for this region you've placed us in. And we know it's only going to happen when we walk in unity. So God, let these, again, like we open with these words, like it says at the end of Ecclesiastes, as we build our life on you, let these words be like firmly embedded nails from the hands of one shepherd. We thank you that you guide us and keep us. And may your goodness and mercy follow us tonight and every day till we come back here. In Jesus' name, amen.